Before I begin this episode, I want to update you all on the status of the swimmer who was pulled from the water at the Boulder 70.3 race a few short weeks ago. Although it was unknown to me at the time that I recorded the last episode, I did learn of his fate before the episode published. Unfortunately, it was simply too late for me to update what I had already recorded at the time that I learned the outcome. I regret to say that the athlete, 64-year-old Kevin Holt, died on Monday, August the 8th. I wanted to take a moment to express my sincerest condolences to any who might be listening who knew Kevin. Hello, and welcome to the August 26, 2022 edition of the TriDoc Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Sankoff, the TriDoc, an emergency physician, triathlon coach, and multiple Ironman finisher, coming to you from beautiful, sunny Denver, Colorado. Way back on December 17th, 2018, the very first episode of this podcast was published to the various streaming platforms out there on the interwebs. Today, a little less than four years later, after more than 50,000 downloads in more than 100 countries, I've arrived with you on my 100th episode. Based on what most podcasts do for their century episode, I take it that this is kind of a big deal, and honestly, I have to say, I'm kind of excited about it myself. I really didn't know where this journey would take me, but it has been one that I have very much enjoyed. It has afforded me the opportunity to speak with some giants in our sport leaders in the industry that supply it, and more importantly, to many, many age groupers all around the world who have told me how much they appreciate this program and the content that I am bringing to them every couple of weeks. Now, clearly, I couldn't do this without the support of you, my listeners, and for the fact that you continue to tune in and find what I am doing to be of service in your own triathlon or endurance sport journeys, I am truly eternally grateful. I do hope that you will take a moment to send me an email or comment on the TriDoc Podcast Facebook page, or better yet, join the private group for this podcast on Facebook, and let me know where you hail from and how this podcast has helped or informed you. While I will take this episode to do a little bit of a look back of sorts, I want to really look forward and continue to bring you the kinds of reviews that you find useful and interviews that you find entertaining. As always, I would love to hear from you on what you would like to hear about and who you would like me to seek out to speak with so that this show can continue to serve all of you as best as possible. So here's to the next 100 episodes. I'm excited to have you all along with me. On the show today, I'm going to revisit all of the things that I have reviewed in the first 100 episodes in order to give you my list of things that I have found to truly be helpful in enhancing performance, recovery, or health in general. Now, you might think that this would make this episode into a really long one, but would you believe that in 100 episodes, the number of things that have definitively been shown to be really helpful numbers exactly five? So it won't be too bad at all. Now, isn't that remarkable to think about 100 episodes and only five things have the science to back up their advertised benefits? Well, actually, I'm not so sure if this is remarkable or just kind of sad. Before I get to that, though, I want to take a moment to thank all of my Patreon supporters of this podcast and to remind those of you who have not yet signed up about the opportunities that exist if you become a Patreon supporter. For about the price of a cup of coffee per month, you could sign up to support the podcast and in doing so get access to bonus interviews and other segments that come out about every month. For this month, today's episode is being recorded as a video presentation that will be available only to those supporters, and in the next couple of weeks, a special episode of the podcast will be put out on the private feed for subscribers, featuring a retrospective on the first 100 episodes. Selected quotes from many of my past guests, and an overview of what we have learned from their insights and wisdom. 
So visit my Patreon site today, learn what it takes to become a supporter so that you can get access, as well as get yourself a pretty nice Boko TriDoc podcast running hat if you subscribe at the $10 per month level. The URL for more information and where you can sign up is patreon.com forward slash TriDoc podcast. And as always, thanks so much in advance just for considering. On this episode of the podcast, it is my 100th episode, and as I mentioned at the top of the show, that has given me a lot of time to review a lot of things that you, my listeners, have asked, or just me and my previous intern, Maddie, or my new interns, uh, the Johnsons, Ian and Ben, have come across in our time surveying the web or looking through some of the many different publications that are sent to us as triathletes and finding things that we wanted to inquire about, well, are, are they really worth all the marketing hype that is being sent at us? And um, over that time, um, as I mentioned uh, before, it's been a little bit disheartening to find that of the many things that I have reviewed, a very small number have actually shown any kind of promise or had any real evidence that suggests that they are useful. And so for this episode, the 100th episode of the TriDoc podcast, I wanted to take some time to kind of review not just those five things that actually uh, have been shown to be useful, but also to remind ourselves why it is that we as triathletes and endurance athletes are so susceptible to the marketing machine that a lot of these um, different products uh, have behind them. Uh, they all use a lot of the same kind of tactics to try and get us to be separated from our hard-earned cash dollars and to try and spend uh, on these things to try and make ourselves better athletes, uh, be able to better perform, race, or recover. Uh, I also want to spend a little bit of time just discussing again what are some of the things that you can do as a diligent person, diligent consumer, to try and sort through some of that marketing and uh, be able to make a good decision as to whether or not something is really worth an investment? So I'm going to spend the next well, really the bulk of the program today, just discussing that. Now, for my Patreon supporters, I'm actually recording this video and it's accompanied by a slide presentation with a lot of uh, graphics and uh, lists on there. And I, I would encourage uh, those of you who are Patreon subscribers to uh, head over to the uh, Patreon site for the TriDoc podcast, uh, where you will find a link uh, that will take you to the private uh, video that is being recorded and uh, that will be up there that will show you this presentation. Uh, but for you uh, who are my podcast listeners, you'll get to hear everything that I'm saying. You just won't get the visuals. If you'd like to get those visuals, then of course, I would uh, urge you to consider signing up to become a Patreon supporter. And of course, you can do that at uh, patreon.com forward slash podcast. Uh, but let's get on to it and uh, let's just discuss uh, uh, again, you know, the first hundred episodes, the things that I've looked at, the things that I've seen, what works, what doesn't, and why is it that we are so um, susceptible to the kinds of hype and marketing machinery that a lot of these products have. And uh, the first thing I want to kind of show uh, to those of you who are able to see it, uh, I'm basically just putting up a, a page from a website of one of the many products I've reviewed over time. And, uh, you know, it's an illustration of how there is just 
so much effort put in to try and glitz things up and make, you know, this kind of ad copy that will make you believe that you have to have this thing. And uh, it doesn't matter what this device is or or what is being hawked on this website. But I mean, just listen to the line at the top of the page. It says, improve your health, well-being, and sports performance. I mean, who wouldn't want something that does that, right? So, I mean, they're getting you right off the bat. And I mean, underneath that, there is all kinds of promises being made that this is going to give you more energy. It's going to lower your heart rate, let you sleep better. I mean, my goodness, it sounds like it's going to take out the garbage, walk the pet for me and and do all kinds of things. Now, clearly... If if any device out there did all of these things, we would want to know about that and we would want to have it. Well, they're making these promises thinking that you're going to want to have it and you're going to want to spend for it. And this device for this website is not inexpensive. So where does this all come from? I mean, science and marketing and athletics have been together in this very weird sort of relationship for quite some time. And it goes back really to the 1960s uh, when Gatorade came out. Um, Now, I I don't think I have to uh, really emphasize this, but I'm sure that all of you are, are aware that sales and marketing agencies are are very rarely going to give you the whole truth. Uh, But in their effort to try and get you to buy a product, they're going to do and say whatever they can uh, that is going to make you believe that what they're telling you is the truth. And one of the ways that they have done this is more and more to co-opt science and to make it seem like science is backing up uh, what they are selling. And the reason for this is simple. Uh, for most of the past century, science and scientists have been thought of as very trustworthy and uh, as offering something that all of us uh, can believe because scientists are viewed as, well, they're smarter than we are. And clearly, if they're suggesting that I use something, they must know something I don't. And so it's not hard to understand why science and scientists are used to try and make these sales. But you know, it, the reality is just often very far dissociated from what is being pushed towards us. Now, unfortunately, a lot of the reason these kinds of advertising and marketing schemes are successful is because scientific research that these ads are based on and the experiments that that scientific research encompasses just happens to be beyond the ability for most endurance and Uh, most endurance athletes and certainly triathletes to really understand and to really be able to dissect. Uh, But in the absence of being able to understand the science, if you take things at face value, where you're at risk of really being deceived. And so I, I try to help you, you know, when I do this program to discuss the things that I've come across, I try to help you be able to sift through everything that's out there, especially these claims claims of scientific proof, by giving you some tips and tricks to look for. So these include understanding some of the typical ploys that are used frequently in sales and marketing, helping you spend just a little bit of time in order to save a lot of money, and then looking for specific red flags. So what are some of the typical ploys that these advertisers will use? Well, one of the most common one is to just overpromise. And you can look at this image that is taken from the uh, website of uh, another device that I have uh, uh, reviewed in the past. And you can see just looking at this 
a very you know small little image that they are promising the use of this product will give you the best possible performance recovery and training i mean that's pretty impressive right who wouldn't want that uh often these sites will use the lingo in order to try and get your attention peaked. Uh, they'll liberally utilize words like watts and VO2 max, electrolytes, lactate. These things are catchwords that are going to attract the attention of endurance athletes, especially triathletes who are familiar with a lot of them, even though they may not completely understand what each of them means in great detail. These advertisers will make use of those words, knowing that Athletes will have the you know bare minimum understanding of them and use them to get their attention. Testimonials are very common. Uh, just because Mikey likes it doesn't mean it's going to work for you. Uh, but it is not uncommon to see heaps of quotation marks and lots of uh, statements about how this particular product is the greatest thing since sliced bread. And uh, you know these are basically not worth the website they're printed on because just because it works for somebody has no bearing whatsoever on whether or not it's going to work for you. Pro athlete endorsements, very common uh, in the most hyped up things. I've reviewed several products. Uh, think about the GO2 or uh, more recently the BOA, which have high uh, you know, uh, profile athletes endorsing them. Those athletes are paid a lot of money to do that. It doesn't necessarily mean they're using these devices or supplements, nor does it mean that they actually believe that these things actually do anything for you. But because they're paid, they're going to tell you so. Uh, often a lot of the stuff that I review that tends not to be particularly useful tends to be very tech heavy because let's face it as triathletes, we're kind of tech geeks and we love tech and we want the newest thing. And, uh, if it's got bright lights and, you know, digital display, chances are we're going to be interested. So a lot of these things tend to be tech heavy. And although they're very cool and interesting little devices, they don't necessarily bring a lot to the table. Uh, the advertisements that you'll frequently see, uh, and the typical ploy, again, this goes under typical ploys that are used by products to try and get you to buy them. Uh, they use graphs and charts very liberally, uh, but don't really explain them all that well. And again, for my Patreon supporters, you can see here on this slide, I've shown you a couple of graphs that were taken from a website of another device that I've reviewed in the past. And it's great. It, it seems to suggest that there's a 6.5% increase of VO2 max in one instance and a 4.1% VO2 max in another instance. But there's very little reference as to what this means. And I didn't just cut this off the web page. I mean, this, this came off the web page pretty much as is. There really wasn't much description. This was just kind of thrown up there as an eye-catching visual to make you feel like this product offered these kinds of benefits. But the devil's in the detail. Like, what are the numbers? Like, is it 4.1% of, I don't know, it was, did it go from 0.5 to 0.7? I, I, did it go from uh, 10 to 12? I mean, it, there's a big difference. Uh, you need to know what the units are. You also need to understand what does that actually mean? At 4.1% in your VO2 max over this given time, which is being shown on this graph, how does that relate to how I'm going to perform? So, you know, just because they show you these fancy looking graphs that looks like they were obtained in an experiment, if you don't know what they mean, then it's not particularly helpful. So the second thing I encourage you to do besides watching out for typical ploys, spend a little time 
uh, on these websites. These websites are very slickly designed, but if you spend, I don't know, 15 minutes, you can usually dig through them to find the important things. So go beyond the flashy graphics page and find the how does it work page or the, you know, what is the science or the about this product page, because there you will then you will tend to find more useful information that can really help you make a decision as to whether or not this product is useful. Even if you don't understand all of the research that's there, just knowing that it's there is helpful. Uh, you want to know when they when they list that research, when they show, you know, the science that's behind this, whatever product you're looking at, is it independent? Or was all of the research done by the company that's made this product? Uh, numerous times, uh, you know, as I've told you when I've reviewed products, I will go to a product's website, look at the research, and all of the research was paid and funded for by the manufacturer of the product. And so you know right away, can't possibly be unbiased in their results. Um, now, has the research that's listed on the page, is it actually published? Uh, there's been several instances where I've gone to these websites, I've looked at the science, and the science is all white papers. So it's unpublished, unpeer-reviewed, and really not particularly worthwhile. Uh, do the references actually relate to the product? Uh, recently, we talked about the core. The core had a, an excellent uh, bibliography of research on its website, but not one of the papers actually had anything to do with the core device. Uh, it all talked about temperature regulation and heat acclimation protocols, all of which was excellent science. But what I want to know is, does using the core device actually help with any of that? And I couldn't tell from the science that was listed because none of it actually related to their product. The science that's there, if you look at the science and you actually read the titles, or if you go further and read the abstract of those papers, what are they telling you? Uh, are the results that they're suggesting, were they, de were they derived in a laboratory experiment or were they actually derived in the field? Because that makes a big difference. As we're going to see when I talk about some of the things that actually work, laboratory experiments are very controlled, very tightly controlled so that you can really you know, take away all the extraneous factors and really control for just the effects of what you are doing. And the problem is, is those laboratory effects are very rarely seen in the real world because the real world has so many other external things going on. So the magnitude of results reported, if they are reported based entirely on laboratory experiments, that may not be quite so helpful. Certainly, if a product is promising results that is based mostly on real-world experimentation, that is something to be much more interested in. So spending a little time going through the science on the websites, you don't have to read all the papers. You don't have to actually know a whole bunch of you know, scientific methodology to really understand these basic things. Were they performed independently? Were they actually published? Do the references relate to the product that's being marketed? And are the promised results derived from laboratory experiments or were they observed in the field? And the next thing is the third thing. So we talked about look for typical ploys, spend a little time on the website, but then also watch for red flags. Very frequently, these manufacturers are going to tell you all about the improvements that they promise, and they do so in a fashion that's called a relative improvement versus an absolute improvement. For example, I showed you a little bit earlier, there was that 4.1% improvement in VO2 max. Well, if that 4.1% was based on, you know, less than you know, if you started with a, a one and you went to 1.04, that's an absolute increase of 0.04. 
it's it's a still a relative increase of 4%. So 4% sounds a lot better than 0.04. And that's why things are often reported in relative increases as opposed to absolute increases. But you can understand why knowing the absolute often is much more important. So another way of thinking about a 4% improvement is if it took you 60 minutes to do a 40 kilometer time trial, a 4% improvement means that it would take you 58 minutes to do the same time trial. Now, is that two minutes important? Maybe, uh, you know, it depends on how much you paid and what you had to put in to get that two minutes. But 4% sounds a lot better than two minutes. And that's why you'll often hear things done as four minutes. Another red flag to consider is to ask yourself if what's being marketed to you is biologically plausible. We've talked about this a lot. And the times that I've gone through things on this podcast, I've mentioned products that offer like crazy kinds of results, but doesn't make any sense biologically. Like, it's like red light therapy was a great example. Uh, red light therapy promises to do pretty much everything. Uh, and yet there's no biological premise for any of it to actually work. So if it doesn't make sense biologically, then they're going to have to do a lot more effort to actually convince me that it works. Now, a lot of the stuff we've reviewed, not really biologically plausible. And because of that, they suggest that you can get all kinds of results without doing anything. And that's a very, you know, we saw that again with red light therapy, stand in front of the red light for 20 minutes a day, and you're going to see that your whatever improves by, you know, some ridiculous percentage. You know, anybody who's pr promising you results with minimal effort, that gets you to the biggest red flag of all. And that is when it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. So over the course of the 99 episodes that I've done till now, I have reviewed a large number of things that simply have not been shown to do a whole lot, despite the fact that there are large marketing campaigns saying that they do, despite the fact that there are many people who will proselytize for them. And if you want to find those proselytizers, look on Facebook, you can find people who will proselytize about all these things. But the reality is the science does not show that any of these supplements work. Creatine, beta alanine, bicarbonate, magnesium, CBD, and branched-chain amino acids. I've talked about each of these in individual episodes of the podcast. If you're interested in any of them, please go visit tridocpodcast.com and you can search for any of these terms in the search window and you will find the specific episode. But you know, while creatine has been shown to be very useful for bodybuilders, it's not particularly useful for us as endurance athletes and triathlon. It's that kind of thing that we found when we reviewed the science on all these supplements. Then I have a subset of uh, devices that I fit under what I call gimmickry. So the GO2 is one of my favorites of uh, outlandish gimmicks that simply does not work. More recently, I actually did another uh, mouthpiece that isn't on this list, and that was the Airwave, also does not work. Aerofit, which is uh, sort of the opposite of the GO2, and the Stamina Pro, which was a patch which I don't even see around anymore. So I guess enough people also believed it didn't work because they don't seem to be around. They, they might be, I just haven't seen them. And then there's tech. I mentioned earlier that, you know, a lot of these things tend to be very tech heavy and a lot of them, you know, again, over promise and don't really deliver. So when we think about some of the tech things that I've looked at, the halo, which was a device you wore on your head and apparently did some kind of trans uh, cranial uh, stimulation, you know, doesn't work in the real world. Continuous glucose monitoring, I 
continue to wonder why people are spending money on this. Um, your pancreas does all the continuous glucose monitoring you could ever need. And uh, the amount of useful information obtained from having a continuous glucose monitor remains essentially zero unless you're a diabetic. Red light therapy, the lumen, which is some device that apparently lets you hack your metabolism. I'm making finger air quotes if you're not able to watch this presentation. Inside Tracker, the blood testing uh, service, uh, dubious claims, uh, no benefit for 99.9% .9 of people. Genetic testing and uh, TENS, which is the um, uh, neurostimulation device where you're getting transcutaneous electrical neurostimulation to make your muscles twitch. None of these things have any science to suggest that they're worthwhile. Don't spend your money on them. Uh, the last category I have here is miscellaneous things, uh, amp human, IV hydration, which apparently is the most popular powdered hydration supplement in the country from what I see in their advertisements recently. Uh, excuse me, that, that was liquid IV that I'm referring to as the popular, as the most popular um, supplement. IV hydration is where you actually put a a needle in your arm and actually get a bag of fluid. That does nothing for you. Uh, liquid IV uh, does nothing for you. Prepid, which is uh, uh, a solution that is uh, more commonly seen in uh, Australia, but uh, is coming to the United States and caused me to do a review of it not too long ago. Compression clothing and kinesio tape. So a very lengthy list and not comprehensive. I've obviously covered a lot of other things, but uh, this is uh, the list of sort of the more popular things that I've covered, uh, none of which have any science to suggest that you should be using them. Now, again, the science is always based on populations and doesn't mean that you know I can predict what's going to happen to any one individual. If you are an individual using one of these things and believes that you are getting some huge benefit out of it, don't listen to me. You just keep doing what you're doing. But the reality is that across a population, none of these things will show any benefit in if you took like 50 people and gave them this device or this supplement and compared them to 50 people who weren't using this device or supplement, you would see no difference between the two groups. But within those groups, you might find one individual who is getting some benefit. So again, I am talking about populations. And if you individually feel like you are getting a benefit from one of these things, more power to you. Do not listen to me on this. Now, there are some things that I've reviewed that don't really have any benefit uh, in terms of their ability to make you perform better or recover better, but they feel pretty good. And uh, for that reason, I've put them in a separate category. So you'll recall, I've talked about massage and massage guns, uh, no benefit whatsoever in terms of actually causing you to be any more limber or injury resistant or recover faster, but absolutely psychological benefits. And who's to say those psychological benefits don't translate somehow to performance for a lot of us. Uh, pneumatic compression garments, uh, Normatex, and all of the different knockoffs of uh, those uh, uh, air-filled uh, boots that uh, you can buy for a very large sum of money. There's no performance benefit or recovery benefits whatsoever, at least in the scientific literature. But again, quite a bit of evidence that they make people feel good. And making people feel good is definitely a worthwhile thing. So uh, if you have the uh, money to afford to buy one of these devices, by all means, just don't expect it to make you somehow recover and be able to do uh, Herculean efforts the day after just because you use those boots. Dry needling, 
And dry needling is incredibly patient dependent. If you are one of those people that loves dry needling, this is going to work for you. If you're one of the large majority of people who don't get a benefit or don't like dry needling, it's not going to do anything. So it's one of these things where if you go into dry needling as a person who really believes it's going to work for you, it may work. But for the most part, the science is pretty clear that dry needling doesn't offer any benefit. Cold water therapy, um, you know, I've talked about cold water immersion. We've talked about cold water therapy in terms of boots that are infused with cold water. Uh, both of them don't have any science to show that they improve recovery or performance. However, uh, they definitely improve psychological well-being. And again, just like all these other things, I don't think there's really any argument that improving psychological well-being is a worthwhile effort and a worthwhile thing to do. So again, if uh, if you have the ability to make use of any of these things, uh, then and they and they benefit and you feel they're benefiting you, then by all means, I would urge you to continue. But then just don't expect any kind of massive performance benefits. Okay, so we've talked about all the things that don't work. We've talked about the things that don't really do a whole lot, but can make you feel better. Now it's time to focus on the things that actually do work, the good stuff. So what are the criteria by which I feel that I can tell you that, yes, something works? Well, most importantly, there has to be independent research demonstrating the benefits of whatever it is I'm going to tell you works. Has to be preferably the highest level evidence, which is a randomized control trial. And there has to be preferably more than one, which means that the experiment was repeated and showed the same results over and over. Absolutely, these results have to have been published. I will never give my wholehearted blessing on something in which results were not published, because if they're not published, they weren't pre-reviewed, and therefore I wonder and I question the validity of those results. The benefits that are being reported have to be on performance and not metrics. I don't care if something improves your VO2 max. I care if something improves your ability to complete uh, an effort, uh, be it a, uh, a treadmill test to fatigue or a 40-kilometer time trial on a bike or a swimming event, whatever it is. If you can show me that your product improves real-world performance and not just a simple metric measured in the lab, then I'm interested. And that's what's going to get my seal of approval. Finally, it has to be applicable to triathlon and endurance sport. Uh, if something works in weightlifting, like creatine, for example, I'm not going to endorse it because that's not my audience. You, my listeners and viewers right now, uh, are my audience and you are endurance athletes, probably almost all triathletes. And for that reason, I don't recommend creatine because creatine has not been shown to help us. However, if something has been shown to help triathletes and not bodybuilders, you're going to hear about it from me. Okay, so with that said, what are the first of the five things that I have come across that definitively have, been, definitively have been shown to help with performance? And that is tapering. So this might seem a bit of a letdown because you don't have to spend any money on tapering. It's not something you're going to buy. It's not something you're going to take. It's not something you're going to actually use. Rather, it's something you're going to do. But of all the things that I have reviewed, tapering is probably one of the two most beneficial. Uh, there's tons of independent research that shows that it works. Some of these first studies go back all the way to the early 1990s, but there have been many, many randomized controlled trials with crossover designs, which are really, really the highest level of evidence you can get. And they have all 
consistently shown the same kinds of benefits that, um, it, you know, it, across different sports, across uh, different genders and ages, tapering uh, done properly, as long as you maintain intensity, decrease volume, then you can see significant improvements. And those improvements are in performance, not just in lab uh, experiments. Uh, some of these documented performance benefits are as large as 25%. Uh, but those are mostly in controlled experiments like a treadmill test to exhaustion. So put a person on a treadmill test, have them run to exhaustion, they'll run, say, 10 minutes. But if they do a proper taper, they'll be able to do the same test 12 and a half minutes. So that's a 25% improvement. But again, that's a very controlled experiment. When it's been looked at in real life, observed situations and events, the benefits of tapering are probably on the order of two to 6%, but that's two to 6%. That's that's a lot. There are not many things that are going to give that much benefit. And this was by not taking anything. This was just by taking it easy for a couple of weeks or a week before your event. Now, there are some additional benefits that uh, have been shown to be associated with tapering. You get improved sleep quality, improved mood, and decreased somatic complaints. Now, for any of you who have experienced the taper tantrums, you may take issue with this, but the literature is consistent. These three things, sleep quality, mood, and uh, decreased uh, physical complaints are all repeatedly reported by people who undergo proper tapers. So tapering. The first thing that I reviewed that really has been shown to be very beneficial. What's the second thing that I reviewed that also has been shown to be beneficial and that I strongly encourage everyone to do? Sleep. Now, I myself am not a great sleeper, and so I am um, chronically sleep-deprived, partly because of what I do, partly just because of my age and the fact that I come from a family of poor sleepers. But if you are a good sleeper, good on you. Because there is lots of evidence to suggest that people who sleep more and people who sleep well are going to get better performance during exercise, uh, not just in training, but in racing as well. We know that decreased sleep leads to earlier perception of exhaustion, that increased sleep results in higher levels of muscle glycogen repletion, and studies of athletes who are sleep-restricted demonstrate as much as 5% reductions in cycling time trial proficiency just by not getting enough sleep. So getting enough sleep can make you a significantly better athlete. We also know that learning and executive function are impaired when you get less sleep, and this can result in a higher likelihood of misjudging things when you're moving at speed, specifically when you're on your bicycle, and uh, that can result in traumatic injury. So getting more sleep may actually be protective just by virtue of the fact that you're going to be better able to handle the challenges that you are going to experience when you're on your bike. And we see this across not just cyclists, but drivers as well, where less sleep is consistently associated with higher collision rates as well as higher injury rates. Sleep, interestingly, is also associated with immune function. The more you sleep, the better your immune system works and the more likely you are to be healthy and not succumb to various infections. 
Now, sleep, as I mentioned, is a restorative uh, process as well. You replete your glycogen during sleep. You also uh, allow for a lot of uh, central nervous system processes to uh, take place that are healing and regenerative. And we know that sleep is vital for recovery and repeat performances. There is uh, an influence of circadian rhythm. That is to say, there are people who have uh, their circadian rhythm such that they're more awake in the mornings and other people who are more awake in the afternoons. And that should be taken into consideration. If you're one of those people, the majority of people who are a morning person, then you should do your training in the morning. If you're uh, one of the uh, third or so of people who are the people who are much more awake in the late afternoon, then you should really do your training in the late afternoon. It's hard, obviously, to manage your races, but you do what you can to try and make sure that you get your circadian rhythm lined up with when you need to perform. And this comes into play also with travel, because we know the jet lag can have a major impact on sleep, a major impact on sleep quality. And this can result in all kinds of problems when it comes to performance at races when you travel to them, if you don't give yourself enough time to adjust in a new time zone. Now, athletes need to have good sleep habits and sleep hygiene because both of these things can lead to improved sleep overall and as a result, improved performance. All right, so we've talked about tapering. We've talked about sleep. The third thing that has been shown to improve performance overall and that I've talked about on this podcast is caffeine, which, of course, is the opposite of sleep. Now, there are various ways uh, proposed for how caffeine works. Uh, some have suggested by mobilization of calcium within the cells, increased free fatty acid metabolism, or uh, its action on the adenosine receptor within the heart and elsewhere in the nervous system. Whatever it is, researchers have repeatedly demonstrated that the intake of caffeine can have a uh, fairly small but significant effect on endurance performance. Increases in mean power output on the bicycle have been registered at 2.9% and faster time trials on bike uh, at 2.2%. And the caffeine dosage uh, doesn't have to be huge, uh, only three uh, milligrams per kilogram, because if you get into a range of three to six milligrams per kilogram, you don't really see that much in increase in benefit. So you can stay on the lower end of that and just be at three milligrams per kilogram. Uh, one thing to take into account is that uh, caffeine generally has a half-life of three to five hours, which is to say that half the caffeine you intake is going to be metabolized by your body within three to five hours. So over the course of um, you know the majority of a 70.3, you're going to deplete your caffeine that's actually in your body uh, in that time. Uh, however, advancing age and female gender both prolong the metabolism of caffeine, giving longer effects. So while the three to five hours uh, half-life may be true for a 20-year-old male, someone like myself in their 50s or uh, one of my compatriots uh, who's a female are going to metabolize caffeine more slowly and won't need to take as much to get a benefit later in the race. Now, the thing about caffeine is not so much that taking it is going to give you an edge over your other athletes, because the reality is that in surveys that have been done, 90% of athletes are using caffeine. So you're not going to get an advantage by using it, but not taking it it's probably leaving something on the table. Now, there are other possible benefits of caffeine as well, but it's not caffeine alone. It's actually caffeine within my preferred beverage, coffee. And that is because there are improved long-term health with lower all-cause mortality that's been seen in study after study on coffee drinkers. Uh, I took this from one of the papers that I reviewed on the subject. An inverse association between coffee consumption and all-cause mortality was maintained irrespective of age, 
weight status, alcohol drinking, smoking status, and caffeine content of coffee, which is to say that the more coffee you drink, the lower your all-cause mortality, no matter what your overall health is, and no matter how much caffeine was in that coffee. So just the coffee itself seems to be good. There's also lower rates of Parkinson's disease, diabetes, multiple forms of cancer, uh, including breast, colorectal, endometrial, and prostate. So drink your coffee, folks. It's good for your racing. It's good for your health. It's also lower cardiovascular mortality, which is interesting because a lot of people associate caffeine with palpitations and agitation. But the reality is caffeine seems to be cardioprotective. Now, you do want to be a little bit careful of the content because, as I said, caffeine can cause palpitations, especially at high dosages. Uh, I mentioned that, you know, you want to stay in the low range of what's been found to actually be performance enhancing. So three milligrams per kilogram for an average person is about 210 milligrams. Now, the amount of caffeine that you get is going to vary dramatically depending on where you're getting it from. So, for example, a brewed coffee Cup, a brewed cup of coffee is about 95 milligrams of caffeine. A can of Coke is 40 milligrams. And a hot chocolate is 19 milligrams. So you want to put that all into context when you're thinking about how you get your caffeine before an event. And you know those Morton gels? Some people are gobbling down those Morton gels pretty quickly on the run course. Be very careful when you grab those Morton gels. Those white ones contain caffeine, 100 milligrams. And if you're gobbling down those white ones, you're going to get to 300 milligrams very quickly. And before you know it, you might find yourself being a little bit agitated, a little bit jittery. All right, that's three of the things. We've got two to go. And the two that are remaining are both plant-derived. So the fourth thing that has been shown to be beneficial for athletes is beetroot juice. Now, beetroot juice has caveats, and we're going to get to them in uh, a second or two, but there's no question uh, that beets have long been studied for their health benefits and have been shown to decrease blood pressure and improve cardiovascular health. This is absolute certainty. So, you know, beetroot juice, even if you don't want it for any of the performance stuff, the health reasons are really very uh very important and, and should be considered to be uh, absolutely true. Uh, the reason beetroot juice has its effects and also the reason it's thought to be performance enhancing is because very high concentrations of inorganic nitrates. Those nitrates, uh, once they get into your mouth, begin a process to be converted to nitrites. And nitrite is the final agent that exerts all of the effects that we're interested in, in terms of getting any kind of performance improvements. We see because of those nitrites, vasodilation, so dilation of the blood vessels leading to our muscles. Uh, we see mitochondrial effects, including uh, increases in VO2 max. We see improvements in muscle contraction and relaxation, all of which improve overall enhancement of the skeletal muscle. And so together, this should lead to improved performance. So the evidence for beetroot juice is actually very compelling. However, it tends to be very sport specific. Almost all of the positive effects reported for beetroot juice are in cyclists. In fact, when runners have been looked at and swimmers have been looked at, there's not been any benefit just in cyclists. It's interesting. Uh, and swimmers and runners are not the only ones. Rowers, kayakers, and various other sports, uh, team sports, for example, uh, they don't show any benefit using beetroot juice. Now, the benefits of beetroot juice are supposedly uh, from all of those things I mentioned before, but the biggest thing is really in the fact that 
it lowers VO2 max needed for a similar power output. So if your VO2 max was 70 in order to put out 200 watts, apparently taking beet juice can lower your VO2 max to 65 to put out the same 200 watts. So you need to deliver less oxygen, you need to less stress on the cardiovascular system for the same amount of power. Uh, peak power performance does not tend to get affected. So you don't actually see people produce more power, you just see them produce the same power more efficiently. Furthermore, effects on time trials, uh, time trial performance on, on the bike is very modest and tends to decrease as the distance gets longer. So for example, in 16 kilometer time trials, beat reduce resulted in a 2.5% improvement for a 50 kilometer time trial, that, that improvement was reduced all the way down to 0.8%. And the reason for this is because beat reduce has a very short time of action. It's metabolized very quickly. Those nitrites do not stay in the bloodstream for very long. And as a result of that, the effects are limited to a very short duration. So I mentioned that beetroot juice comes with a lot of caveats. Uh, the first of those is you need a lot of it. Uh, and I mean, really a lot of it. Um, I'm showing a graph here that shows uh, the concentration of nitrates in uh, various different beetroot juice supplements that are available on the market. And the vast majority of them simply do not have enough to get you over the threshold where you'll actually see an effect. And a lot of these are really expensive. Now, the other thing about beetroot juice is the process, as I mentioned, for the conversion of nitrates to nitrite begins in the mouth with the activation of salivary amylase. The problem is a lot of these things are taken as capsules. And uh, there is a very prominent uh, supporter of triathlons who is a very prominent advertiser to triathletes that uh, offers beetroot, uh, beetroot powder that is given in capsule form. So it basically skips the mouth and goes right to the stomach where it's not going to get activated and therefore not become the kind of nitrates that you actually need. So again, it needs to be something you take as a liquid or some kind of solid that you start in the mouth in order to get the benefit. It also has to be taken 90 minutes before exercise. It takes about that long for the conversion and absorption to happen. And its peak effect happens about two to three hours post-ingestion and then decreases very, very quickly. Now, one other caveat that I have to mention here before we move on to the biggest caveat at all, but one other caveat is that beetroot juice is very uh, commonly the cause of people rushing to the emergency department because the first time you, well, go to the bathroom after consuming beetroot juice, you can be a little bit shocked because it can cause some really profound changes in the stool. It can basically make it look like you're bleeding out. And sometimes it can make it look like you're peeing blood as well. So if you're using beetroot juice supplements, don't be afraid. That is a normal side effect. Uh, not even a side effect. It's just a normal effect. And uh, it is not dangerous at all. Now, the biggest caveat the absolute most important thing to take away from the beetroot juice discussion is that it only works for 50% of the population because there are more recent studies on women alone that have shown that beetroot juice simply does not work for women. And there are various reasons for why this might be. Uh, and it's unclear if it's the exercise performance benefits or if it's all the health benefits that don't extend over to women. But since there's no downsides to using beetroot juice, I would never tell women not to take beetroot juice because, again, we don't have any evidence that the health effects aren't conferred to women. So, you know, again, you know, beetroot juice doesn't cause any bad things. So, you know, you should definitely take care, take it if it if it interests you. 
however, you should know if you're thinking you're getting exercise performance of the two studies that were done in the last couple of years, one of them showing that, uh, quote, acute beetroot juice supplementation did not improve exercise economy in well-trained women, but significantly reduced res- uh, a RPE or the um, re- um, perceived exertion um, of doing that exercise. But again, that's a metric. And if the performance doesn't improve, I mean, I don't, I don't really care if RPE is improved if the performance isn't changing. Uh, a second study found that uh, beetroot juice may not be an effective ergogenic aid in recreational active females as it did not reduce submaximal exercise VO2 or improve aerobic TT performance despite increasing low-frequency torque production. A long and sort of wordy way of basically saying beetroot juice just simply doesn't help women on the bike the way it does in men. And the reason for this seems to be because women just naturally have higher levels of nitrite in their blood and taking the beetroot juice doesn't get them to a tipping point the way it does with men who have lower levels of nitrite and taking the nitrite from beetroot juice actually gets them over that edge. All right, the fifth and final thing. So um, we've talked about tapering, we've talked about sleep, we've talked about caffeine, we've talked about beetroot juice. Beetroot juice, again, really best for cyclists and male cyclists. Uh, the final thing, and this is the one that I really um, am most enthusiastic about because I was quite surprised at how positive the science was, and that's spirulina. So spirulina is a a naturally occurring abundant blue-green algae. It's found and easily cultivated worldwide, and it's even been grown in space and has been referred to as a superfood, not just because of how easy it is to grow everywhere, but also because it's just got a very high content of an array of minerals and vitamins. In seven grams of spirulina, you will find four grams of protein, 11% of the recommended daily allowance of thiamine or B1, 15% 15% of B2, 4% of B3, 20 21% of, of the daily allowance of copper, and 11% of the daily allowance of iron. There also are included in spirulina omega-3 fatty acids and complex antioxidants. Now, there are numerous health benefits reported for spirulina, but few of them have really been rigorously studied. These include uh, improvements in lipid profiles, blood pressure control, and even glucose control. But the most intriguing thing for me has been the studies that have looked at spirulina and its effects on endurance athletes. Early studies on spirulina and exercise suggested that the time to exhaustion for a treadmill test increased by 7%. Remember I said the 2 to 6% we see in tapering is not seen in many other things. Well, Here you go, 7% with spirulina. Blood tests on uh, people who do these treadmill tests also show lower markers of tissue damage, suggesting that spirulina can actually improve recovery as well. More recent studies in cyclists have shown that spirulina can improve cycling performance with lower heart rate and improved oxygen uptake. And uh, this may be because of higher hemoglobin levels, not so much because the iron in spirulina is being converted into new hemoglobin in new red blood cells, but rather because spirulina seems to induce liberation of blood cells from the spleen. The spleen is an organ in the abdomen that actually sequesters red blood cells, and spirulina seems to liberate those red blood cells into the bloodstream, allowing for a a bump in your hemoglobin. Now, how the hemoglobin is increased, whether or not it's synthesized red blood cells or liberation from the spleen, doesn't really matter, simply because the results are the same. Now, other studies on cyclists have shown improved performance in both sprints and time trials, with decreased levels of lactate production, lower heart rate for the same effort, 
and higher peak powers, something that we didn't see with beetroot juice. Several studies have also showed improved recovery and decreased tissue damage with these higher efforts. And there are less rigorous science, uh, although there are still some research papers out there that demonstrate some improvements in overall energy levels and even memory. And as I mentioned before, weight loss and lipid profile may be impacted to some degree, but it's not been shown convincingly. Spirulina is very widely available in powder, capsules, tablets, or even frozen cubes that can be mixed into smoothies. And it's as inexpensive as 20 cents a day for two teaspoons, six grams. So it's good stuff, spirulina. I have, it's the one thing that I've actually, after all the reviews, taken up and actually use on a daily basis. I add it to my smoothies. Uh, my um, fellow coaches in life sport have taken to mocking me for this, but hey, it's healthy. And uh, if it's giving me some kind of benefit, why not? I think the long and the short of everything that I've seen in my 100 episodes of reviewing products and supplements and whatever it is, is that at the end of the day, you know, there's really no substitute for hard work, good diet and living well, because that's really what we found in the five things that actually help you. I mean, if you sleep well, if you eat well and you eat healthy and have your cup of coffee in the morning, you're a leg up on everybody who's spending their money on the fancy tech that they're buying, thinking that they're getting some kind of benefit. So do the hard work, live well and eat well, and you're probably going to do better than most of your compatriots out there. So to put it all together, science, we know, often co-opted to get you to part with your hard-earned money in order to buy things that probably don't work. Reality is often not what marketing and sales executives are going to be, you know, feeding you in order to get you to buy these things. You should always retain a healthy amount of skepticism. Don't be afraid to dig into the claims on the website in order to find out if there's any truth to or merit to them. And most importantly, if it sounds too good to be true, it very likely is. Now, for the next 100 episodes, if you've got a question that you'd like me to consider, or if you've got a product that you want me to review, then I hope that you will send me an email at tri underscore doc at icloud.com, or you can join the TriDoc Podcast Facebook group, which is a private group that you can apply to enter by answering three very simple questions. I will grant you access, and I'd love to have you be part of the conversation and submit your question there. And that's it for the 100th episode of the TriDoc Podcast. This podcast is produced and edited by me, Jeff Sankoff, along with my amazing interns, Ben and Ian Johnson. No relation. You can find the show notes for everything discussed on the show today, as well as archives of previous episodes at our website, www.tridocpodcast.com. If you have questions or comments about any of the issues discussed on this episode, please send me an email at tri underscore doc at icloud.com. As always, if you're interested in coaching services, I hope that you'll visit try.coaching.com or lifesportcoaching.com, where you can find a lot of information about me and the services that I provide. You can also follow me on the TriDoc Podcast Facebook page, TriDoc Coaching on Instagram, and the TriDoc Coaching YouTube channel, and there's always the private TriDoc Podcast Facebook group. If you enjoy this podcast, I hope that you'll consider leaving us a rating and a review, as well as subscribe to the show wherever you download it. And of course, there's always the option of becoming a supporter of the podcast at patreon.com forward slash podcast. The music heard at the beginning and the end of all 100 shows is radio by Empty Hours and has always been used with permission. Thank you to my brother-in-law, Rob Chowhan, for that. 
This song and many others like it can be found at ReverbNation.com, where I hope that you'll visit and give small independent bands a chance. The TriDog Podcast will be back again soon for the 101st episode with another medical question for me to answer and another interview with someone in the world of multi-sport. Until then, I want to take a moment to thank my indomitable intern, Maddie Pesh, who was a huge part of the first 100 episodes. And remember, 1121, train hard, train healthy.